It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. We are finishing up our 21 days of prayer with a sermon by Lou Dawson, where he instructs us to pray like Paul. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 14 through 19. Here's Lou. For the last 21 days as a church, we have been both studying prayer, and more importantly, we've been praying together. And I hope that you have been challenged and blessed as you have diligently sought the Lord and applied His Word to your life. I know that I've certainly been challenged and, and blessed as well during this time of prayer. This morning, I'd like to kind of add an exclamation point to the end of our 21 days of prayer journey. One thing, one of the things I appreciated about it was the helpful structure that the weekly prayer guides added to my prayer life. I find that I often agree with the Apostle Paul that I don't know how to pray as I should, and I suspect that some of you probably feel the same way. With all this in view, I'd like to look together at one of the Apostle Paul's prayers for his dear friends in the church at Ephesus. And in doing so, we can allow him to to mentor us in prayer. And my desire is to help us understand what animated Paul in prayer and contribute also a biblically-based supplication to our prayer vocabulary. The title of this morning's message is Pray Like Paul. I got the wrong slide here. And our text is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to this passage and follow along as I read it. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Before we begin studying this passage, uh, some background here is in order. The church in Ephesus was quite dear to Paul. At its inception, he spent a lot of time with this church, diligently building them up and ministering to them. In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, he mentioned that Day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. A year or so later, as he was sailing back to Jerusalem, knowing that he was actually going to be in prison, Paul made a very deliberate stop at Ephesus to connect with the leadership of this church. And four years after that meeting... While Paul was in prison, he wrote this very letter that we are reading right here. And as is typical of many of Paul's letters, it's divided up into two parts. 
In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul reminds these believers of doctrine that pertains to their current situation. In chapters 4 through 6, he reminds them of how practically to apply this doctrine that he's just taught them. This passage that we're looking at today is at the very end of the doctrinal section, and in many ways it's kind of the, the climax of what Paul teaches in this entire section of Scripture. In this prayer, Paul kind of, kind of molds together the themes that he has taught in chapters 1 through 3 and prepares the Ephesian readers for the practical applications of the doctrine that he's going to start working on in chapter 4. So zeroing in on this passage, we learn in verse 14 that Paul was praying for the Ephesians since he indicates that he bows his knees before the Father. Now this language indicates that Paul is is very deliberately getting down on his knees for the purpose of praying. This is not just a, a, a passing bullet prayer that's offered. This prayer was, was well thought out, it was very serious, and it was offered to the Lord in light of what Paul knew the Ephesian church members really needed. Now, in verses 16 through 19, Paul prays a four-step kind of progressive prayer with each step building on the previous one. This prayer starts out in verse 16 as Paul prayed for spiritual strengthening for the Ephesian believers. And notice that Paul specifies the source of the strengthening power. The strengthening power that Paul prays for comes from the Holy Spirit. You see, as Christians, God's Spirit is the source of His power. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' own disciples were told by Him that they, they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And at that, that very same immense power of the Holy Spirit changed the impulsive, self-willed apostle Peter into a mighty witness for Christ, seeing, and he saw thousands of people come to faith through his preaching. Paul knew that the Spirit of God could and would spiritually strengthen the Ephesian believers, and that's why he made this request initially. Now, the second step in this progressive prayer is found in the first part of verse 17. In this verse, Paul asks that the spiritual strengthening he prayed for in verse 6 would lead to Christ dwelling in the Ephesian believers' hearts. Now, in this verse, we need to figure out what Paul means by this phrase, dwell in your hearts. For starters, we know that Paul is praying for a group of people that are actually already, they're already Christians. And because of this, we know that he, he's not praying for salvation. That has already occurred in these people's lives. And according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, we know that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, as Paul refers to him in Romans, already lives inside these believers. So when Paul prayed that Christ might dwell in the Ephesian Christian's heart, what does he mean? Well, the big clue is found in the word itself, dwell. Now the idea behind this word means to 
to settle down and make yourself at home. It's the difference between simply staying in a house or living there and being at home there too. As one Bible commentator put it, he said, it's not a question of whether or not Christ is living in with you. It's a question whether he is comfortable or not, whether he is at home there. So dwelling is what is supposed to, to characterize the relationship between us and Jesus who lives in us. Let me illustrate. Back in the Stone Age, many years ago, I married my wife, Karen, and we moved in together. And though we certainly knew each other, at first it was a little awkward. We loved each other and both lived under the same roof, but we hadn't learned to be at home with each other yet. And as the years have gone by, we've lived and walked through life together. We have grown very comfortable together, sharing a unity of purpose, sharing our hearts with one another. And we are now close companions and best friends. We started out living under the same roof together, but now we dwell together. This is the idea behind the dwelling word that Paul uses in this prayer. And according to Paul, this dwelling happens, if you look at the text there, at the heart level. The heart is the inner man, the seat of our thoughts, of our wills, and our emotions. So, as Christ dwells in our hearts, we share our thoughts with Christ. We listen as He shares His thoughts with us through the pages of Scripture. We submit our wills to Christ and we dedicate ourselves as His bondservants. We share our feelings with Jesus, our joys and our sorrows, even as He shares His heart with us. The question we need to ask ourselves is whether there is genuine companionship between us and Christ, or are we just roommates? Back in the 1960s, a, a Greek scholar named Kenneth Woost translated the entire New Testament using as many English words as necessary to bring out the fullness and the, the rich nuances of the Greek text. It's an excellent resource. It's still available today, and I'd highly recommend it. It's very good. Here is his translation of the first part of verse 17. Paul asks the Lord to strengthen the Ephesian believers spiritually so that Christ might finally settle down and feel completely at home in your hearts through faith. And this is a really good synopsis of what Paul is praying would happen in the lives of of these Ephesian believers that he loved. And make no mistake, this dwelling, friendship, sharing of heart and life relationship is part of Paul's understanding of what the true Christian life is all about. Notice how Jesus himself characterizes the Christian life to the lukewarm members of the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In this verse, Jesus characterizes the Christian life as one of sharing a meal together with him and fellowshipping over that meal. This is another picture of that dwelling relationship that Paul prays for in the Ephesian church. 
Also notice in verse 17 that Paul says that this dwelling relationship happens through faith. This relationship is initiated by faith at salvation and is continued by faith as we walk with Him. The faith takes the form of trusting that Christ does indeed live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, but also trusting that Christ loves us and desires to have a dwelling relationship with with us. If the devil is unable to keep us from trusting Christ unto salvation, he will change his tactics and try to get us to doubt Christ's desire for loving fellowship with us. Or another of the enemy's tactics is to convince us that we're, that we're so broken and awful that Jesus couldn't possibly desire companionship with us. You see, based on the Word of God, both of those things are lies. Our Lord does desire to have ongoing fellowship with us, and our sins have been paid in full at the cross. There's now no condemnation possible for those who are in Christ. And we must choose to put our faith in these truths rather than trusting our feelings or listening to the whisperings of the enemies of our, of our enemy of our soul. Now, the third step in this progressive prayer is found in verse 18 through the first part of verse 19. And these verses, having already been strengthened spiritually, living in a dwelling relationship with Christ, having already been rooted and grounded in love, Paul prays that this love would lead the Ephesian believers into a realization of Christ's love. Now, having said this, you'll notice that this realization kind of comes in two parts. The first part is in verse 18, where Paul prays that his Ephesian readers would comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. Now, this comprehend word has the idea of, of really of head knowledge behind it. So, Paul is praying that the Ephesians would intellectually grasp the love of Christ for them. But notice that he wants them to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth of that love. Now, using these three-dimensional terms, Paul's essentially asking the Lord to cause the Ephesian believers to intellectually understand the vast dimensions of the love of Christ for them. And this really should be no surprise since Paul has gone to tremendous lengths in the first two chapters of Ephesians to let his Ephesian readers grasp the immensity of this love. In these chapters, Paul reminded that the Father chose them for Himself before the world was created. And that the Father adopted them as His own beloved children. And that the Father bought them bought them out of slavery for Himself by sacrificing His Son to purchase their freedom. And that the Father gave them an inheritance of all of creation to be shared with their brother Christ. And that the Father will follow through on everything that He has promised and He has given them the Spirit as the pledge of that. And that God considers His church His precious treasure. And that 
God's children will share Christ's glory with Him throughout eternity. Truly with this in mind, Paul was deliberately trying to to blow the Ephesians' minds with the vast dimensions of Christ's love for them. He wanted them to stand in, in stunned amazement as they understood this overwhelming truth. Now, the second part of this realization was that the Ephesians would know the love of Christ. And at first glance, this almost seems like, like, wait a minute, Paul, you're repeating yourself? You're getting senile? Well, Paul had already prayed that the Ephesian believers would comprehend Christ's vast love for them. Now he's praying that these saints would know the love of Christ for them. But the specific word that Paul uses here is about more than just head knowledge. The idea behind this part of Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would come to know Christ by experience. And thus, in the third step of the prayer, he's praying that they would intellectually grasp the vast love of Christ as experience, as they experience this same immense love. Again, notice with Kenneth Woos expanded translation, what he captures about this part of Paul's prayer. He says that you may be able to comprehend, able to grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know experientially the love of Christ. How many of you have ever been to Yosemite? Most of you have. Beautiful place. I visited Yosemite many years ago as a young child, and I frankly have almost no recollection of it. I was pretty young at the time. I did get to visit Yosemite again when I was well into my adult years. Aside from those trips, I've seen many, many, many beautiful pictures of the park. One of the most breathtaking pictures of this park is the view from the Vista Point right outside of the Wawona Tunnel. And I want to give credit where credit due is due. This beautiful picture was taken by our own Brad Braley. By means of this photograph, it's very easy to comprehend how stunningly beautiful Yosemite is. But after experiencing this view right here in person, I can tell you that the pictures don't even begin to do it justice. What the picture actually fails to capture is, is the massive scale of the objects in the picture. We can comprehend the beauty of Yosemite from this photograph, but actually experiencing this view in person actually catapults the majesty of this scene into really a whole different realm. And this is exactly why Paul prays what he does here. He's praying that in the context of this dwelling companionship relationship with Christ, that the Ephesian believers might comprehend intellectually the love of Christ for them, but also that in an even fuller way they might understand His vast love by experience. And even then, notice what Paul says in verse 19, indicating that the love of Christ, it actually surpasses knowledge. He is saying that the love of Christ for His people is so massive that it's impossible to ever fully experience it. Now, all of this leads us to the fourth step in this progressive prayer. And the final step is found 
in the second half of verse 19, when Paul says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, notice how he starts out with the word that. You see, there is a cause-effect relationship here. Essentially, Paul is praying that all of what he has prayed thus far would be the cause that yielded the effect of being filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, this is kind of an odd phrase, to be filled up to all the fullness of God, and we need to figure out again what it means. When a person is filled up to all the fullness of God, then they are filled up completely with God Himself. A person filled up with God would reflect what God is like in their character and actions. Essentially, they would be God-like or godly is what we'd call it so in essence in this prayer paul is praying for a series of things to happen in the lives of the ephesian believers leading to godliness in a nutshell this is how the christian life is supposed to work depending on the power of the holy spirit in us and seeking to live in this dwelling friendship companionship relationship with christ by faith as we do, we begin to comprehend His vast love for us. And as we begin to comprehend this love, we begin to know the love of Christ for us as well. And as a result of all this, we are progressively transformed into Christ's likeness in our thoughts and actions. And again, this is Paul's understanding of really how the Christian life is supposed to work. If you have any doubts about the central importance of living in this vital, loving relationship with God, consider what Jesus Himself said was at the very core of the Jewish law. Remember what He said was at the core of the Jewish law when the Jewish lawyer asked Him? Remember what He said? Remember what He said what it was? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Again, the love relationship with the Lord is central. And consider what happened to the Ephesian believers themselves 30 years after this Ephesian letter was written to them. About 30 years later in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus himself spoke to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Here's what he said. He said, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put them to the test who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You have found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Thirty years after Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian believers, the church was working very hard. And they were persevering in their faith. They knew their Bibles. And they knew their Bible doctrine inside and out such that they could sniff out a false teacher from a mile away. They knew the do's and the don'ts by heart. And they sought to live them out. But, notice what Jesus says to them next. But this I have against you, that you have left your first 
love. And the word that Jesus uses here when He said left their first love has the idea behind it of of abandoning someone. And it's even used in places in the Scripture as a synonym for divorce. In other words, 30 years later, the Ephesian believers had, had deliberately abandoned and walked away from their first love relationship with Christ. And in place of that loving companionship relationship, which at one time they enjoyed, they had substituted doctrinal sophistication. So what did Jesus think about this substitution? The next verse. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. My! Jesus essentially tells this church that unless they repented and returned to their their first love relationship with Him, their church was done. You see, living in that vital relationship with the Lord, it's really the blazing core of the Christian life. I want to bring to your attention another facet of this whole topic in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. Turn there in your Bibles. Revelation 21.1 The Apostle John said this, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He will dwell, notice that word, He will dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This passage is what glory will look like for those who Christ has made His own. Remember back in the Ephesians 3 prayer, the loving, companionship, dwelling relationship with Christ that is at the very core of the Christian life? Guess what? Heaven will be a perfect version of our earthly loving relationship with Christ. Here it is. In heaven, our relationship with Jesus is such that we we can see Him and we can touch Him as He lived with us, and we can converse with Him, and He lovingly and tenderly wipes away every tear from our eyes. You see, when we understand the Christian life properly, we see that it is meant to be 
an imperfect but glorious version of the life in heaven. In fact, we sang about it this morning. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. One last point in this discussion. How does obedience to God's commands fit into this picture? How do the, the put-offs and the put-ons of Ephesians chapter 4-6 through 6 fit into this relationship? Because they're there. Jesus Himself told us how they fit. If you love Me, you will keep My commands. You see, as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, living in that relationship with Christ, comprehending and knowing by experience His love, we will very naturally desire to obey Him. Obedience progressively becomes our great joy and our great delight. Now, are we still responsible to put off sin and put on righteousness? Absolutely. But that is also why the content of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 come before the content of Ephesians chapter 4 through 6. When you get the first part right, the second part happens naturally. You know, I still remember when I was reading this prayer and really beginning to understand the implications of it for the first time. At that time, many years ago, my Christian life was focused on putting off sin and putting on righteous living. Good thing, right? I was fixated on all the put-offs and put-ons of Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 and kind of ignoring chapters 1 through 3. And frankly, I was miserable. I was living my life under a Christianized version of the law of Moses and there was not a whole lot of vitality and joy in my life. I remember reading this prayer and understanding it and for the first time and quietly saying to myself, you know, Paul, I hear what you're saying, but man, I don't know if this could really happen to me. Maybe you're in that same boat today, thinking that same thing. Turn back to Ephesians 3, if you're not already there. Turn back there. And turn back to, after the prayer, to Ephesians 3, verse 20. Notice what Paul says there. And it's connected to the prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. I remember reading this and the ask and the think part of the verse really kind of stood out to me. Paul was saying that God was able to do abundantly more than I might ask or think. 
I remember quietly laughing as it, as it occurred to me that, that Paul knew exactly what his readers would be thinking after they read this prayer. Paul knew exactly what I'd be thinking after I read this prayer. Paul was essentially saying, look, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking this prayer could never happen to you in your life. But I assure you that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you think, and He can bring this about in your life. Then I considered the, the ask part in this verse, more than you could ask or think. And it occurred to me that Paul was, was subtly challenging his readers, and me too, to ask for what he had just prayed. So silly me, <laughs> I got down on my knees, and I put my name in it. So how do we apply all of what we have considered here today? I'd like to make four very practical suggestions for applying this beautiful prayer of Paul to our lives. First, pray like Paul. Bow your knees before the Lord today and put your name in this prayer. And understand that since this is clearly God's will for you and me, He will certainly answer this prayer. According to 1 John 5, 14 and 15, if we ask the Lord for anything that is according to His will, we will get it. The only caveat is that we don't know the how in the when part. Pray this for your family. And pray this for all of the believers here at RBC. Can you imagine what would happen if God made this prayer a living reality in every person at RBC? It would be crazy in a good way. Second, adjust your understanding of what the Christian life is about. At its core, it's a love relationship with Jesus Himself who lives inside of each one of us. His desire is for intimate fellowship and mutual sharing of hearts with each one of us. Complete submission of our wills out of love for Him is the natural overflow of this dwelling relationship with Him. Progressive Christ-likeness is the outcome. Third, approach your day differently. When you get up in the morning and you open your Bible to read it, realize that the Lord wants to share His heart with you through this book right here. This book is how He communicates with us. And our prayer is simply responding back to Him from our own heart. He desires ongoing fellowship with us. So as much as possible, seek to maintain the conversation with Him all day long, throughout the day. And fourth, actively seek to comprehend the love of Christ. Search the Scriptures about God's great love for you, His child. The love of God and His people, it's an all-encompassing theme that goes throughout the whole of Scripture. And as a result of that, we naturally come to love Him because He loved us first. We love Him because He first loved us.
The love of Christ is the, the engine of the Christian life that causes the dwelling relationship to blossom and endure for a lifetime, leading to loving obedience and to godliness. Let's pray. Oh, our loving Father, like the Apostle Paul requested for the Ephesians, we we ask that You would strengthen us spiritually by Your Holy Spirit so that we might live in loving communion with You by faith. We ask that as we dwell with Your Son, that You would cause us to both comprehend and know Your great love for us by experience so that we might be more and more conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Our Lord, we we praise You that You are overwhelmingly able to bring all of this about so that You would be praised and glorified in Your church and in Your Son forever. All glory to You. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot Rancho Baptist Church dot org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.